You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone, welcome one, welcome all to another episode of Changing Reality. So thank you guys for joining us again for today's interview. If this is your first time joining, where have you been all our lives? Welcome to the show. And Changing Reality, for those of you who may not be familiar, is a show on WQHS Radio here at Penn that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are essentially changing their own reality. So through the show, we'll be hanging out and interviewing amazing people from social change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, to even artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals, uh, thought leaders in a sense from all across the world, and many of them who are from the Penn campus themselves. So by hearing these inspiring stories on how they managed to not only change the reality for themselves, but to create ripple effect in the lives of those around them, hopefully we'll be able to take little nuggets of wisdom, learn the lessons that they went through so that we can apply it in our own lives as well. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people that we meet every single day um, on campus that we don't really get to hear their stories in a sense. And they do phenomenal things and they really make change in the lives of those around them. And I'm super passionate about learning how they came to the places that they are, how what their stories are. And hopefully by learning those stories, we'll be able to kind of make references in our own life and, and pursue a journey that we are passionate about. So personally, to show you how much I am a believer in the power of stories, I actually founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance uh, back at home in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that collaborates with uh, not only our Malaysian Ministry of Education, but 28 different cult, uh, countries to actually provide an alternative education platform for any student out there who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary to high school through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities that help them discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them, and actually go out there and start their own careers while they're still in school that creates meaningful impact for themselves and those for, around them as well. And we've been very fortunate to work with over 35,000 students at 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by students aged 8 to 25 years old. And the reason we've been able to do all of that is because of kind people who have been willing to share their stories, who have been willing to share their experiences with those who need to hear them. And similarly like that, I hope that this show is that platform for you so that you can listen to the stories that will crop your life path as well. So if there's anything specific that you want to talk about that you want to hear more about or a specific person or a specific industry you want to explore, let us know in the chat below and we'll try our best to make sure we take it all sometime in the run of the show. So on to today's episode. Today we have someone who is absolutely amazing, a professor at Wharton, uh, for many of you who may know him. And he's a professor of marketing at the Wharton School and the faculty director of the Wharton Customer Analytics, uh, which for well, those who don't know is the world's most uh, preeminent academic research center uh, focusing on the practice of data-driven business decision makings. So his research interests uh, are amazingly uh, wide in the areas of uh, pricing and social networks. And he's even taught in areas of market research and analytics. And it's amazing to read a lot of the things that um, he has been publishing over the last couple of years. I've personally been a fan. And today we'll even get into some of his latest research. He's someone whose uh, work has been published in the Journal of Marketing Research, the Journal of Consumer Research, and Marketing Science as well. So without further ado, 
let's welcome our amazing professor and our guest speaker for today's interview onto our show. So hello, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Harsha. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being on the show. As I said, I'm a fan of your work recently. I've been reading up a little bit and I'm personally someone who thinks it's very timely and very interesting with a lot of things that's going on in the world right now. But I'm, I'm jumping in a sense to that part of the interview. I shall silence myself on that. But I'm very interested in finding out how you actually got into this field in a sense. You research on, on things like, the, like social networks or subscription-based models, which today seem very, very much relevant to what's happening. But... How did you predict that this would be the next big thing that you needed to get into? Was this a field of interest, something that you always had in? Or were you someone who didn't even expect to, I would say, get to this industry where you are now? No, first kind words. Thank you. Uh, no, I mean, I guess I wish I were able to predict, uh, you know, I would be probably making a lot of money, uh, but no. Uh, so I think it happens as, you know, as you said, you know, being a professor involves being passionate about what one does in terms of research and so on. Uh, and my journey kind of started as a grad student at Columbia. That's where I did my uh, PhD. Uh, and my first job was here at Wharton back in 2005. Um, and if I kind of turn back time, uh, you know, even then I was interested in pricing. It happened to be my dissertation area as well. And over time, I think, uh, you know, you start kind of getting into new things as you're surrounded by different people. Um, so one of my colleagues, uh, Christoph Vandenbulter, who is uh, in my department as well, uh, wonderful colleague, uh, does a lot of work on social networks. Um, and just as I form my network with him, uh, I kind of got excited about that space as well. And so I think it was by osmosis. I mean, our offices are just next to each other, uh, just separated by a conference room on the seventh floor in Huntsman. Um, so if you're ever, ever around there, uh, stop by. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's how I kind of gotten into social networks as well. I think you sort of get excited by, A, what intrinsically excites you and the people you hang out with. All right. You've wrapped up, like, what I would say most people struggle to, to find the golden truths in life, in a sense, the environment you're in and kind of, like, pursuing what your heart wants, in a sense. So I think we can end the interview right there. No, I'm joking. But... Um, <laughs> It's very interesting that you actually, I, I would say that you actually pursued that as a grad student. I think many of us don't really think of our professors as students ever in a sense. Uh, and, and and hence we we torture you with our many questions and our much indecision as uh, as the people who, who, you, who we are learning from in a sense. I'm very curious in a sense how you actually figured out that this field of academia was for you. I think you actually studied engineering while you were a bachelor's degree student, right? Um, yes. How did you go from that path or what was your initial decisions of what you wanted to do with your life in a sense? Was it always steered here or was it a process of figuring it out as well? I think it was certainly a mix of the two. Uh, you know, I, when I was growing up, uh, you know, as you said, I went to undergrad at IIT, uh, one of the engineering schools in India. No, thank you. Yeah, I and mean, it's a great school. It's also very humbling. Uh, because you realize that there are people way smarter than you are, uh, which is good. I mean, I think to be surrounded by people who are smarter and more, you know, have done a lot more things because it helps you kind of set the goal uh, in terms of where you want to be, hopefully. Uh, but I went there and it so happened that my brother, who was five years older than I was, uh, he had gone there as well, did amazing things. Uh, my dad was a professor at IIT. Uh, so I think, you know, sort of surrounded by uh, academics. The osmosis the theory as well, right? It, very much so. And I think, you know, a lot of people still ask me, you know, uh, professor seems like a uh, something obscure. 
why would I want to do that? And B, it seems very risky. Uh, both of them for me were actually kind of A, less risk because it was a common path that was treaded by my brother, my, my parents, and other people I knew growing up. And B, it seemed like sort of very kind of uh, a, the, the end of a path of a journey that I was taking anyways because I saw my dad, I saw my mom, she's a PhD in biochemistry. Like that seemed like a fun thing to do. Like, okay, let's do it. Okay. That, that, that's, I think that is something that we all like, like don't even realize at times the influence the people around us have in a sense. Absolutely. And then like prior to being an entrepreneur, I remember as a kid, I used to see my mom going to the office and I used to think like, I want to one day be like her work in a corporate job. I used to, to, to dream about that in a sense. And then I realized later only that, okay, maybe that's not so much for me in a sense. <laughs> For, for you, in a sense, what was the turning point from, from engineering that made you really look at, okay, maybe I want to do something else, maybe I want to go into analytics and all, which is a bit of a jump, a, a, a bit of a, yeah, a, a little bit different from where you started out, in a sense. Uh, I, I know that you pursued your MBA as well, after your bachelor's degree, um, and, and did a pivot there too? So uh, the way it worked out was uh, I finished my undergrad and then at some point, you know, I had come to grad school actually here in the U.S. Uh, in Maryland uh, for my Ph.D. in engineering. And at some point, I think two years into the journey, I realized uh, that I did want to be an academic. Uh, I sort of, you know, I gave at least I guess, as, as you said, osmosis had, had come in at that time. But I somehow just could not see myself getting excited by engineering problems. Um, so quite honestly, I think this was certainly as, uh, I think you'd asked me, you know, was it a well kind of treaded path Did I had everything and I didn't, uh, and this was a little bit of soul searching for me, kind of, where is it that I would like to use things that I'm excited about? So I was excited about using math statistics, things that I was more familiar with, uh, but, you know, looked around for an opportunity in terms of understanding what are other areas that are exciting. Um, and it turned out that, uh, a little bit fortuitous that, uh, you know, I came across marketing. Um, and I, quite honestly, I had really little idea of marketing before that. Uh, but it turned out that the people that uh, I started reading papers off uh, were people who had a very similar background. Um, and the kinds of things that they were doing at that time, uh, and many of them are still doing many, many, many exciting extensions of what they were doing, uh, is recommendation systems, uh, they were doing things on uh, promotion programs, things of that nature, which seemed like, wow, that's kind of interesting. You know, at some point, it seemed like using mathematical tools or statistical tools to answer questions about consumer behavior. And so that seemed like a great marriage that I was very excited about. Um, and so that's how I kind of said, well, maybe that's the area that, A, I can apply what I'm comfortable with. But at the same time, something I uh, truly got more excited about than what I was doing in engineering. Oh, very, very cool. And I, and I like how you say it's kind of like this intersection between the statistics of it and also the consumer behavior side of it. I feel like there is a very fascinating like uh, infrastructure. I think all great mathematicians and scientists have been trying to figure out the algorithm for human behavior. Yeah. And I think with the work that you do, we're getting one step closer at the very least, in a sense, to, to see in, in, in a consumer point of view what that means in a way. When, when you started, in a sense, and, and in that PhD process, number one, having to pivot from, yep. from two very uh, polarizing fields and all of that. Yep. And then um, 
like having to come up with a dissertation, having to actually uh, find out what you wanted to research on. Yeah. That itself is a very, I would say, daunting process. I know some PhD students that I recently met were cracking their heads trying to figure out what they want to focus on specifically, what they want to kind of like uh, write their thesis on. So for you, what was your experience with that? Did you did you one day, I don't know, have a light bulb moment and then suddenly said, okay, this is the this is the secret to human behavior. I need to tell the world. Or how did you go about finding out like at least that first bit of research what you wanted to do? So I, I wish I could claim the light bulb uh, scenario did was not. And you could say I had a light bulb moment after about, I would say, 15 or 20 ideas I had uh, were rejected by my advisors. So yes, the light bulb moment happened, but happened very late. Uh, but no, I think, again, uh, there are people who obviously are extremely smart. They may have some sense of what may work, what may not work. Uh, I didn't happen to be one of those. I think it took some time to figure out what is it I knew that I was excited around the area of pricing. Um, and, you know, again, I've read a bunch of papers around it, kind of how do people respond to different kinds of prices. Uh, and But at the same time, you know, for, for your dissertation, as one of my advisors, Sunil Gupta, who is now a, a professor at Harvard, used to say, well, for your dissertation, you need to have the right kind of, uh, you know, intersection between new data and new models. Um, so it has to be, you know, you, you can't kind of go ahead and reinvent the wheel for sure. But at the same time, you don't want to be applying, you know, sophisticated new models to data that sounds boring. Uh, <laughs> so it was an interesting intersection of the two that hopefully can get you a good job. And so a lot of it was searching around kind of what may be interesting areas of research. Uh, and just to kind of add on to what you were saying about dissertation, uh, there are different points of view on what dissertation should be. Uh, one point of view is, well, you work on a paper. Uh, you work hard on it, uh, you go uh, onto the job market with it, which is the academic job market, that kind of becomes your dissertation. Uh, there could be other papers along the way. For me, I think uh, the way I think about dissertation is, and that's also obviously influenced by my advisors, uh, is that you know this is something that you really worked hard on getting comfortable with. Uh, you've understood the context, you've you know, worked for two, three years almost, uh, kind of really honing into perhaps a nuanced problem, but at least understanding that context. So it has to be something uh, that, for the want of a better thing, like something that has legs. Uh, what that means is, uh, you know, just as you drink wine, which I think you don't, but uh, if, if you sip a glass of wine uh, and you say, well, this has, you know, good body, good legs, uh, you know, what is it that you're trying to say? It has, uh, it has a long kind of permanent mark. Uh, and so the hope is if you put in all this fixed cost of understanding the context, it has to be something that hopefully can give you many multiple papers. Um, so that was also a challenge uh, because it can't be that this idea that you come around with uh, is interesting, but perhaps for one paper. Then, well, you know, that was interesting, but you got to generate many such ideas uh, once you start becoming a professor. And so the hope was that, which I'm glad my advisors were as kind of, uh, you know, passionate about this as I was, if not more, uh, they kind of kept pushing me uh, and hopefully they saw some potential. They kept pushing me to say, well, you know, think about the idea, think about what other things you can do with it. Um, and so I think it was a lot of back and forth. Uh, I wouldn't say there was really a time when I could say, well, that is the idea and let's go. Uh, if you happen. could, then well, I'd start getting lottery numbers from you. But Exactly. <laughs> No, and, and I think that's such a very real problem in a sense. Like you mentioned, like like that opening phrase, which is 
some people maybe are, are brilliant and they can have that light bulb moment. Other people, like there's a trial and error period to it. I feel like 99% of people fall into that that category yeah. of, of like, they, it, it's a conversation that you have in figuring out what it is. Exactly. And, and it's very interesting that, you, that I also like that you mentioned that it's uh, it's not about just having an idea that you can write one paper about. Sense. It's something that you can constantly go back to, which yeah. is much harder to think about in, in terms of kind of like looking at the longevity of it. Today, when you work with students, and and, and, and many of these students probably are, uh, may not even know what idea yeah. would have that longevity and, and things like that. What what do you what do you advise them in a sense, or how do you guide them to, to start coming up with these ideas? Because number one, I think we've reached a point where everyone feels to an extent that every good idea has been thought of already. Sure. In a sense. Yeah. And and the, the the fear that they may not be able to come up with something original or, or that's exciting enough or that people want to hear about probably is there as well. So how how do you basically steer them into finding those ideas? No, I think it's a great question. Uh, I thought the same in 2004 when I was doing my PhD. Every good idea has been done. Uh, <laughs> fast forward 2022, I, I'm sure it's the same. Uh, but I think the good news is, uh, even though, yes, many ideas have been done, there's always room for thinking clearly, perhaps revisiting a problem, uh, perhaps uh, coming up with new problems altogether. And the way I tell at least the students I work with is that one has to be persistent. Uh, I think there's a lot to say about creativity, for sure, uh, obviously. Uh, but I think uh, at the same time, you know, like anything else, like, you know, being an entrepreneur, you're probably making a lot of pitches uh, and not every pitch works. Sometimes it works. Sometimes people are not as excited. But you have to have this inner passion to say, well, let's forget about this one. Let's go to the next pitch. Uh, I think it's the same thing for PhD students. Uh, you know, you're in for a long marathon, as I call it. Uh, it's about five-year journey, and there would be obviously uh, lots of hurdles along the way. Uh, it's easier to give up uh, than to keep going sometimes. Uh, but you just, you know, if you truly believe that that is what you want to do, got to be persistent and keep thinking about tinkering with problems. Uh, think about problems that perhaps uh, have hopefully extensions that you're excited about. Uh, and so what I kind of tell PhD students to do is like think about problems that hopefully can define who you are, especially dissertation. Uh, kind of, you know, these are, uh, and, and again, one of my advisors jokingly, perhaps not somewhat jokingly, uh, used to say that, uh, you know, if you're coming up for tenure, uh, which is, uh, you know, something that all academics want to, you know, get through that hurdle. Uh, if you're coming up for tenure and people have to open up, quote unquote, your packet to see what you do, uh, you're already doomed. Uh, <laughs> so, you need to have an identity. Uh, an identity is an area. The identity is perhaps things that you've done that collectively form your portfolio. Uh, you know, like a serial entrepreneur. Uh, you know, obviously a serial entrepreneur uh, obviously gets a lot more respect than the first time entrepreneur. Uh, and the reason is because they've had multiple successes along the way. And so to me, I think kind of, if you think about your academic portfolio in exactly that way, uh, you can't be a you know, one hit wonder. Nobody's gonna like that. Uh, unless, of course, that's like, you know, the biggest thing out there. You Usually, pain clients in a sense. But yeah. Exactly. Mostly, most people are not that. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to have multiple hits, hopefully it, in some sense, conducively and, and, and altogether forms a coherent portfolio. And so that's what I urge people to do. Like, you know, rather than just doing one thing after another, which is more kind of just driven by opportunity, uh, you should think more proactively. 
and kind of say, what are some things that perhaps I should be doing? And what are some things, even though look attractive, somehow just don't fall into the swim lane that I want to be in? Well, that's great advice, not just for PhD students. I think that's great life advice in, in itself because like, like the idea of, of, of like opportunities are in abundance in, in the world in a sense and to find the ones that basically build that coherent narrative in your life, exactly. I think, is the real challenge more than just yeah. jumping on something in a sense. So, so wow. I asked, I asked my PhD students, why, why, why am I like, burn now? oh no. But I think it's a good segue into your, your life as a lecturer and in working with a lot of these students. Sure. You, you are obviously just for them from that one question and from, I would say, the, the many fans and, and people uh, that you've taught are, are definitely an, uh, an amazing professor in a sense with, with so much insight. How was it like when you first started teaching? Was it um, was it as smooth sailing as it is now, or I, and and even more, I would say the work that you do is so nuanced. Um, and Wharton has brilliant students in a sense, and and and, and many of them are as a, as I would argue much much more smarter than me at the very least. So how was the first experience addressing this this class of extremely bright and intelligent people, and 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 bringing them through the work or the modules that you had in a sense? Uh, no, again, uh, as all professor, right? You in your twenties? Oh my God, that was that was that is itself an achievement. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I, again, I had a very nice role model in my brother, who was who is much smarter than I am, and who was a professor uh, much earlier than I was. So, uh, thankfully, uh, so that was good to at least uh, you know see what one can do. Uh, but for me, I think again, uh, like everything else, you learn by you know reinforcement. And so, you know, the first time I was teaching, I had some great mentors. Uh, there are uh, people like Pete Fader, Eric Bradlow, who are in my uh, department, um, and you know, who had taught that class before, uh, who had obviously lots of lots more experience under their belt than I did. Um, and so, a got some great advice. But at the end of the day, in some sense, it was finding your own voice uh, and finding the way youth can connect with students. And, you know, I had the opportunity again of visiting different people's classrooms before I started teaching, uh, because I was teaching in, so I joined in, uh, it seemed a long time ago, July of 2005. It is a long time ago, uh, but, uh, I was not teaching, if I remember correctly, till spring of 2006. So I had fall of 2005, uh, pretty much kind of, you know, just getting adjusted, coming to Penn. Uh, you know, kind of getting into the habit of kind of, you know, becoming a professor. Um, so I went in there, sat in some of these uh, classes and amazingly good professors. I mean, like Dave Reepstein, who's a senior colleague, I had an opportunity to sit with Dave, David Bell, who is, uh, who is not with us anymore. He has gone off to do his own fund. Uh, so he's clearly, uh, you know, kind of uh, riding on what he knows. Uh, everybody had a different style. And what was interesting to see was, while everybody had a different style, each one of them was equally successful. And so what that helped me see was that there is no one path to success when one starts teaching. Uh, you have to find a way that resonates best with your personality. Uh, and you have to find a way that you think can convey the content in a way that resonates with students. Uh, and, you know, different people are very different. And so I think for me, the initial maybe a year or two was just finding my own voice, trying to understand what works, what doesn't work. Uh, because I think if you just simply uh, like, you know, try to mimic or imitate somebody else uh, in terms of what works, you, know, you can't carry it through all the way. Uh, because at some point, you know, that's not you. 
And so for me, you know, I joke around a lot. Uh, I, you know, I, I think for me, it's been also like, yeah, people want to learn. But uh, at some point, you know, learning can be boring if it's in a very, very stressful slash pressure-driven environment. And so, you know, talking about, uh, you know, a little joke here and there, uh, kind of making it as relevant as possible to students who are taking the class in terms of where I think, now that I've obviously had a few more years, where I think this kind of thing would be helpful as they graduate. Uh, so I, I didn't have as many stories before. Uh, obviously, that took some time, but I have those stories now. So I think it's just finding, you know, getting comfortable in your own skin is what I call it. Again, with the life advice, okay. Oh, like it's, it's 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 very very like an amazing answer in a sense, and and I definitely think that um, I would say for any students watching, if you have the opportunity, make sure that you join one of his classes so that you can see it for yourself in a sense. Um, you also teach, I think, the executive education classes and and and, and MBF course and, and so forth. So there's also a lot of people who are practitioners in their life in a sense. Absolutely. Marketing, um, and I'm sure that's a bit of a different approach from us confused, lost undergrads in a sense <laughs> at times. So when when speak, and I'm sure you consult for companies as well on a lot of these this yeah. work and all. When when seeing kind of the intersection between the research that you do and the practicality of it, uh, how do you make sure that you convey the work that you do in a sense that it can be applied by these people who are probably in a class and then they're going out there and they're seeing yeah. it in work is, is there a different style of communicating that or, or, or is there a method that you employ in being able to, to clearly define those yeah i mean certainly i i think uh one of the things that again at least organically has been happening over time as one gets comfortable with teaching is that i think the audience also uh you know as the audience differs even though you may have the same message you have to give it in a way that is uh, a little bit more resonating with that audience so for instance, you know, uh, I'll give you a tangible example as, you know, uh, as will be the best for the audience here. Uh, <laughs> you know, when we talk about, uh, let's say, subscription programs, uh, if I give it at, like at the 30,000 feet level, uh, yeah, subscription programs, I talk a lot about, you know, some research that I've recently done, but then I give it more of a perspective of if you were a manager in one of these companies, what are some things you should be thinking about? And so you should probably be thinking about the revenues, but don't forget about the costs and so on and so forth. Now, if you take the same exact kind of content, but let's say you're talking to the analysts or somebody who's more technical, uh, they're probably more interested in, you know, how did you go about doing this? Like what are the nuts and bolts? And so while it might be helpful for them to kind of understand the big picture, they want to get into the weeds. And so, uh, you know, understanding what the audience is kind of thinking about and where they're coming from helps you to kind of understand, you, do you want to be at the 100 feet level or the 10,000 feet level? Uh, and then appropriately kind of uh, pitch that same exact idea in different ways. Very, very interesting. And and definitely a very, I would say, you you make being a professor sound like, like very scary to me at the very least. It's like you're- No, it's exciting. <laughs> it's like there is the, the analytics of the research and then the analytics of the people that you're meeting where you have to process that and then you have to, you have, you have to do some internal, I would say, algorithm to figure it out. I think, I don't know about you, but I think hopefully someone watching this will do a paper on the professors that we have and, and their oh, process. Well, I, the I, I am sure there are already people, at least if they're not doing a paper, they've internally ranked them. So I yeah. hope I'm up on top. We'll see. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, all right, very yeah. cool. Let, let's talk a little bit about some of your your, your research and, and the stuff that you've been focusing sure. on. I've personally recently heard on from the many fans and rumors circulating the work that you're doing that you you recently were doing this work research on kind of like loyalty programs and kind of the profitability the profitability inside of it. Yeah. It's quite interesting in a sense that I that I was reading about it that like pros for some people find that that when they subscribe to something or when they or when when kind of like they they really have an engagement with it they're more like they spend twice as much on that and, and that's a very that's very interesting for me and and, you, and your research of course much more comprehensive than my one sentence like uh, can do justice to when you come up with ideas like this it personally seems very timely uh, with some of the recent I would say news regarding yeah. some. Specific subscription model-based companies that I shall not name any names, but of course, if you guys are following the news, you'll know what's happening. Yeah. How how do you come up with research that that basically can predict what's happening out there, and then that is so relevant to what's going on? No, I think again, uh, I, I I wish I knew four or five years ago when we started this project. <laughs> uh, that is typically the time length. I wouldn't say five years is a long time. Uh, but uh, this paper went through four rounds, so it was a you know reasonably intensive review, which is uh, very good from the journal's perspective as well. Uh, journal of Marketing Research, which is where this was published, and I think you know the review team was amazing uh, in terms of giving a lot of constructive feedback, how to make that paper better and more impactful. But the reason I bring this up is it's very hard to predict uh, what might happen, you know, when you start the paper versus something that happens later. Uh, I was naturally curious about subscription programs, uh, just as a result of some of the work that I'd done before. An opportunity came up to collaborate with uh, one a colleague and actually a, uh, a Wharton alumni in Cornell, a uh, professor called Young Hoon Park, and a PhD student here at uh, Wharton, who is now a professor at uh, Singapore Management University, SMU, uh, Chi Yu. Um, so we just said, well, this is, this is the right kind of uh, question to ask. Uh, did we know that there will be a lot of people outside who will be interested in it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, subscriptions had been obviously quite interesting even then. Uh, but I think it just took a life of its own just because of the recent news about many different subscriptions, unfortunately, not working out. Um, and so I think in that sense, uh, it is fortuitous that it happened. But I would say I don't think we had any of that in mind uh, when we started it. We were interested in the problem. I think subscriptions were hot uh, even then. Uh, but it was sort of like, well, yeah, we would really want to study how is it that people are behaving and what are the kinds of things that can happen under programs that perhaps are not anticipating. Uh, and so those are the kinds of things, at least that got us excited. Tell us a bit about the process of coming of coming up with that, that that piece of research in a sense. I feel like as students, we take it for granted. You know, we're, we're scheming, we're, we're looking through journals and, and, and like finding quotes for our papers and all of that. We don't appreciate the amount of effort <laughs> that actually goes into it. I think you, you, your team interviewed something like 24,000 different uh, like like people for for the piece of research in a sense and, and of course it, it's a five year process so it's a huge endeavor in a sense tell tell us from your point of view so the person yeah. doing the research what are the things that we uh, the readers miss out when we're when we're engaging with this no I think again uh, at the end of the day uh, the way I tell people is that you know when the research paper is written the paper should not uh, hopefully be a, a temporal reading of what has gone in it has to tell a story. <laughs> Uh, so hopefully the paper ends up in a way that actually people don't realize the work. That's actually a good thing. 
uh, because then it is telling the story in the right way as opposed to oh my god these people were doing it from you know whenever to so i'm glad that you know in some sense you don't but the way i see it is that you know as with any academic process uh, a research has to be rigorous uh, b obviously and again this is something at least from my perspective if i'm in a business school it has to be research that has an applied focus uh, that's again my own perspective uh and so i think this the subscription programs one uh, or uh, other things which i've done before to me at least seem to be in that right intersection something obviously that's very applied but at the same time at least as far as we knew nobody had a really done very detailed analysis of kind of at the at an individual member level what happens how do things change and so on. so it took a little bit of time for us to also formulate kind of what questions are the important ones to ask to me that is the crux of any research uh, paper or that should be the crux mm -hmm. uh, which is rather than starting from the data perspective you start from the questions uh, you know what is it that you're interested in and why is this interesting and to whom would it be interesting uh, it doesn't have to be that everybody needs to pick up a journal article and say i'm going to apply it tomorrow uh, <laughs> may or may not be uh, but at least some audience be it academics be it practitioners be it whoever your relevant policy makers uh, somebody should be excited about it um and so i think in that sense uh, asking the questions that took some time then making sure that the questions that we were asking also had the relevant data for it that took some time as well and then of course the real analysis is what takes the most time uh and so we did that and then just to kind of have our audience go through that uh, simulate the process of what happens in a paper uh you send it and you hope for the best uh so we had sent it to a journal of marketing research uh very good journal obviously a, a, a top tier journal in marketing but the journal of course uh, assigns three reviewers typically an area editor to kind of talk a little bit about them go through the paper and see kind of is this paper worthy uh and typically the reviewers are taking a perspective of is it done competently uh is it asking the right questions uh is it something that the audience of the journal would find interesting uh the other thing that at least i've started getting a lot more about i would say you know since i'm getting a little bit older now is that is this a paper that somebody if they read 5 years from now uh will they still like it which is will they look back and say ah, i don't know how that paper got through or will they say ah, interesting question interesting way of thinking about it and so what is it that will hopefully keep the paper uh popular and have a slightly longer lifetime value of that paper uh, as much as possible uh, so kind of putting all of that perspective uh with the review team and so on it took almost 3 years or so 3 three and a half years uh you know it was four rounds so it's basically meaning the reviewer saw it they came back with comments we took some time send it back and this kind of back and forth happened about four times and so it was a little bit extensive uh, i would say i won't call it outlier but certainly towards the uh longer end of the review process but at the end thankfully the review team was happy we did i think what we could do kind of like you know again uh, the way at least i kind of urge a lot of students to do now is go above and beyond what review team is telling you uh because you know this is your paper your name is on it and so i hope you will be proud of this paper when it comes out uh and b think about things that you would like to actually do uh rather than kind of oh the team is telling me to do this or team is telling me to do that uh, no this has to be your idea so as much ownership can you you can take the better it is
Okay, amazing. And you've done so much research in kind of the pricing, the subscription model arena. There's been so many findings that, that, that you yourself have championed and pioneered. I mean, I know one of my favorite one was that I think I read somewhere that one of the things that you guys found was that when the, the, I think it was the, the relationship between the behavior of subscription programs and consumer behavior and how only one third of the effect of like the purchasing amount is actually yep. attributed to like economic benefits in a sense. Correct. And I was like, oh, I, I thought that would be the main thing. Like, yeah. like why is it only like, yeah. like, like one third of people? Yeah. So that was like, like some of the things that I found very interesting in a sense. From, from all of the research that you, you've done, what do you think has been one that, that, that to you surprised you or that you felt has, has had the strongest impact on, on the audience that you put out in a sense? So, I mean, if I talk about, I mean, there are many different audiences. Uh, I'll talk about audience of one, which is me. Uh, so uh, for me, what has been the most amazing collaboration is something that I had with uh, a, a colleague slash mentor, whatever you want to call it, from uh, Colombia, a person called Kamel Jadidi. Uh, he was on my dissertation committee, uh, a wonderful, wonderful collaborator. Uh, and, you know, we've had several papers together. Uh, whoever asks me, I tell them that, you know, if not for Kamel, I think I would certainly not be as successful. Uh, so, you know, you find these people that A, are giving their time, uh, giving their advice and working with you in some sense, you know, obviously everybody makes, uh, makes a, a trade-off of allocation of time. And the fact that I was getting a chunk of his time was very, very valuable for me. Uh, and so that personally, I mean, the papers I worked with him uh, some of them have been very, very good in terms of getting a, at least nominated for certain awards. Uh, but regardless, for me, I think it's just the personal satisfaction of working with someone uh, who had my back. Uh, and so that that to me has been an amazing experience. And I think it's a, one of the highest compliments when someone on your dissertation committee agrees to work with you. And, and, and this is amazing in this sense. Tell me a little bit about if you are allowed to, what are, what's the research that you're working on now? What, what is the cutting edge information or something that you're passionately uh, checking out right now in a sense so we can spoiler it for our audience? <laughs> Certainly. Uh, well, I hope the spoiler is something that happens soon too rather than another five-year wait. Uh, yeah. But uh, there are two things that I'm kind of excited about these days. Uh, one is actually a work with uh, a colleague in my department, Ryan Du. Uh, who is an amazing researcher as well, machine learning, all that stuff. I'm learning from him. Uh, and uh, a grad student, uh, Zizun, uh, who is in the econ department, but Ryan and I are her advisors. So we have actually been looking at uh, TikTok videos uh, and trying try to figure out what makes videos popular. And in fact, and interestingly, what is the value of a follower on TikTok? And value meaning like, you know, obviously people are very excited about, saying, oh, let's find the influencer. Let's find the influencer with the most number of followers. Are they as valuable uh, in terms of the number of impressions, in terms of perhaps likes or whatever the case might be? So uh, Zishan, the grad student, actually downloaded about half a million TikTok videos uh, over a six-month period. And you can imagine, A, there's a lot of data, that's for sure. But what's more interesting, I think, for us is that there is a lot of unstructured data, which is there's the video itself, there's the background audio, there are the hashtags, there is the writing, there is the editing, all of that stuff which likely makes the video popular and perhaps is more important than just the creator kind of, uh, you know, characteristics. You know, yes, the person might be an influencer, but they're not just creating videos at random. 
And so what is it about these videos? So we've been doing a lot of work along those areas to try to find out uh, you know, what makes a video click, so to speak, and what makes videos lemons. Uh, you know, they had unfortunately had a history which was not as good as it could have been. Uh, and so we've been doing that as well. Uh, so that's one paper I'm very excited about. Hopefully this will be Zijun's job market paper. So coming soon, that should close soon, hopefully. The review process will start, but, uh, but at least this part should close soon. Uh, the other paper I'm very excited about is a paper with a grad student, another grad student in my department called Enrique, um, and somebody I know from India. We've been doing a lot of work on something called a super app. Uh, and, you know, especially from, you know, in Malaysia, for example, has Gojek, if I remember right. Uh, uh, and there are many other, you know, countries that have different kinds of super apps. Uh, Gojek, uh, India, there's Paytm. Uh, in China, there's Weibo uh, and, or WeChat, you know, all kinds of things. The, the interesting thing there is that on the one hand, you can imagine that the reason why the super app exists is because many of these companies want to curate the entire customer journey. You come in, you have the food delivery, you have restaurants, you have cabs, you have every possible thing. But, you know, on the flip side, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, all the work that has been done on complementary goods, typically they say, you know, you can do bundling of like hot dogs and buns, right? Why? Because they go together. Now, yeah. here you have these super apps, which have so many different services that may have nothing to do with each other. And so when we start thinking about the impact of a super app on consumer behavior, do consumers really value all of this? And if so, how much do they value? And so we've been uh, lucky enough to work with a super app company where we have tons and tons of data in terms of customers' transactions over time uh, using different features of the app. So some of the features might be payment for utility bills. Another feature might be uh, payment for travel tickets. Uh, a third feature might be just payment for buying insurance. And so how are all these things which have perhaps little to do with each other? Uh, how do they perhaps A, have synergy? And B, does that synergy differ by the type of customer? Um, so for example, some people may be spending a lot on the app. And at some point as new features come up, they might say, you know what? I'm like maxing out here. I mean, how much do you want me to spend here now? And so they might actually take some of the spending from other features and transfer to the new one. So in some sense, a new feature for them from the app's perspective is simply cannibalizing uh, what they were spending elsewhere. There are some other members who might not be spending as much. And as new features keep getting added up, they start finding more value. And so their pie size increases. And so, uh, you know, different customer heterogeneity, so to speak, uh, might have different implications in terms of what might happen to overall spending. Did my Wi-Fi just totally crash? I can only assume it's that okay. my super app on my phone that is in charge of paying my utilities <laughs> communicated that I was getting more smarter from this yeah. conversation and crashed my Wi-Fi. <laughs> that, that, is, that is the theory we will go with for the rest of this interview. We can definitely do that. Yeah, but, but that is extremely fascinating. I cannot decide which of those two papers is more interesting to me because they're both <laughs> they're both such really good like an amazing i'll say problems on one side you're bringing essentially the concepts of customer lifetime value to the social media world and it's so true that the the, the value of followers is never as what it seems i know people with like like just from a sales point of view people who do like influencer marketing I'm exactly not a fan of that, who have 
thousands or, or like millions of followers, but they struggle to sell something and some were exactly. a very tight knit community, but they but they get like that engagement very like quick in a sense. So so there's so much nuances that I think it, I that is making me very um, I would say angry at the review process for delaying my ability to read. Well, uh, we'll certainly thing. make sure uh, to give you a copy of the paper hot off the press, Please. hopefully soon. Yeah, we will have an entire interview with on, on just that in a sense. And, and, sure. and I feel like talking about the super app too much because again my, my phone might just kill me like in my sleep later and just be like, yo, yo, cursed knowledge, you know. <laughs> but but that is also very fascinating because I now that I think about it, do I really need to pay my bills order food and at the same time get a cab from one app in a sense exactly. and how many of those features do i as a consumer actually use when when, when exactly. i'm thinking about the app in exactly. a sense so very very interesting like 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 pieces so kind of like 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 points of the focus that i think not only your you and your team but i think all of us should at least stew on it until we can read your research at the very least so, so thank you so much for sharing as we wind down, and and, and I think uh, we are, I, I think I've, I've, we've already hit the 45 minutes mark. I completely didn't realize you you were very good at, at sharing your stories and, and, your, and make your research come to life in a sense. But as we wind down this conversation in a sense, what do you think is the most powerful part of academia to influence the world? Because again, with with billionaires, it's very easy. They buy your service, sure. and you immediately, you know, there is a change in the in, in the power shift of the quadrant. But how, tell us a bit about the power academia has in, in making these changes and in perpetrating ideas across the board. I think uh, you know. I wish I could choose two. Maybe I'll choose two. If you don't mind. <laughs> you can. Uh, certainly. Uh, so one is, I think, uh, hopefully, kind of uh, a doing good research. Uh, that finds its way uh, into practice. Um, so, you know, my colleague Pete Fader uh, is very, very, uh, I think it's an, a great example of that. Uh, he is somebody who is a rigorous researcher, uh, has done a lot of amazing work, but at the same time has also kind of uh, started two companies. One of them was sold to Nike. And so hopefully, you know, one has, uh, one has a, a sort of a academic career where you do good work, but at the same time, through osmosis, through whatever else, are also influencing practice. That's one. The second thing I think is the a, a big responsibility, at least I feel it, uh, of being an academic is hopefully uh, generating the next generation of uh, good thinkers uh, and, and people who would be leaders in the business community. And so that's another way in which uh, one can make impact in terms of trying to see if uh, you in the classroom, you as collaborating with students, whatever perspective one may have, hopefully are having a positive influence in how they think and change the world. Amazing. What do you think is one thing that students should know about their professors or, or, or the effort that their professors put into the research, the classes, to everything that they do that we may not be so aware in a sense? Well, what is the secret that I should go and tell all ah. students and friends that they need to become aware of in a sense? Oh, I mean, I would use just one word, have empathy uh, or two words. I guess. <laughs> uh, so, you know, everybody uh, as with students, I think, uh, you know, everybody has uh, is allocating time uh, based on what they see as the best return. Uh, and I think for, for professors, I think uh, all of us, I would say, want to do great in research, 
We also want to do great in the classroom. And we also want to serve the community in different ways. Uh, so I think, you know, everything takes time. And so if there is uh, sometimes, you know, things don't go well in the classroom, that think of it as a minor blip rather than something persistent. Uh, so that's what I would say. Oh, and, and, and I really like this this whole conversation because you, you put a very human spotlight in, I mean, I think uh, uh, the world of academia, which people may not always think of exactly warm and fuzzy feelings when they think of uh, research and, 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 and hard evidence in, in a sense, but, but you've really put a human light to it. And, and I think more people would definitely want to find their voice, want to find what, what they are passionate about, and then this is a path for them to explore that in a sense. Final, final question. I promise I'll shut up. Zip it after this, in a sense. For all of those who want to venture into the academic realm and, and, and see if this is something that they can use to, to, to I would say, yeah. investigate further the areas of their own passion, what's your advice for them? It's not an easy journey, definitely. There is a yes. lot of, uh, and, and you have to have a certain amount of, I would say, resilience to, to, to be successful. Yes. Uh, so, what, you know, advice? Yeah, I mean, I think the advice would be, I would say, uh, and again, this is a little bit stereotypical, but that's okay, I think, uh, is that, you know, much of the academic kind of life you may have has to be self-driven in terms of finding the problems. And so I think there are certainly a set of people who are very, very good, persistent, motivated, and can come up with their own problems. There are also a set of people who are extremely good at executing the problems. Uh, uh, but may not be as great as coming up with innovative problems. I think it's good to find out which category you belong to, uh, because I think there is value, obviously, in both of them. Uh, you know, no great problem just sits on the table unless it's executed. Uh, and coming up with a problem is just a necessary but not sufficient condition for making it, uh, you know, through anything, not just academia. Um, so I think kind of thinking about uh, how comfortable are you in sort of unstructured environments, where you are your own timekeeper, uh, where nobody's, uh, you know, hounding down at the end of the day saying, what did you do? Because you're kind of on your own. And so if you like that environment, I think it's a great world to be in, uh, being an academic. Whereas if you like a little bit more structure, sometimes externally imposed, uh, perhaps <laughs> academia may not be the best way there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Definitely, definitely a, a nice way to wrap up. Yeah. And thank yeah. you so much for being on the show. Um, I definitely am motivated to hopefully one day be able to attend one of your classes just from this conversation. Having you, you, are, you are extremely wise and at the same time have a brilliant way of articulating it that makes me interested in the data and the research and all of that. I'm so glad. thank you so much for being on the show in a sense. And I really do appreciate you taking the time. As you said, everyone spending their time. It, it, it's a commodity in a sense. And, I, and I'm and i really thankful that you put, uh, took a bit of that, uh, uh, took an hour out of your day to speak to our audience in a sense. And to our audience, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did uh, having the conversation in a sense. And as always, make sure you let us know in the comments uh, your thoughts, your questions. And like this episode because it was amazing so thank you so much everyone and thank you especially to our speaker you've been amazing thank you thank you for having me it was a pleasure all right and with that we'll wrap up for today and see you guys next thursday you're listening to changing reality changing reality where we bend reality all across the world only on wqhs radio